Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Back at it for yet another action-packed episode. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. First of all, thanks for all of the really nice comments I received on last week's pilot reading. You know, it was very gratifying to finally hear it the way David Isaacs and I envisioned it. And it was great to finally get those laughs. Although in the back of my mind, I'm still going, damn it, Fox missed a bet. They should have gone with that show. Anyway, this week. Topics that cover various aspects of my checkered career. We're going to get into Top 40 Radio, into TV writing, both for MASH and for Cheers. Have some anecdotes. We'll get into a little baseball where I will introduce you to the real Brockmeyer. And I'm going to throw in a little Beaver Cleaver as well. So, as they say on TV, it all starts now. Hollywood and the Did I ever tell you about the time that I met Prince Charles? Well, this was on the 20th Century Fox lot when I was on MASH. And it was like, I believe 1977, might have been 1978. I meet so much royalty, I can never really keep it straight. But he was in town, and the truth is, he wanted to see Charlie's Angels. But since he was there... He also decided that he wanted to see MASH. And so the studio went to unbelievable lengths to prepare for his visit. Okay, now this is true, and you're not going to believe it, but it is true. The studio wanted to look its best, so all of the buildings were repainted. Well, not all of the buildings. Only the sides of the buildings that were in his view along his motorcade route. So it would be like the front of one building, the side of another building, etc., and that was it. And before you can say, come on, that's unbelievable, let me just correct you and say, that's typical. So we go down to the MASH set, and we get prepped by one of his people saying, when we meet the prince, we have to stand in a receiving line and we have to address him a certain way. And there were very specific instructions all the way down the line. So he arrives and first we're going to show him a scene. And we had the scene all prepared. I remember it was an operating room scene And he watched it, and the scene played out great. The only thing is, and this is just between you and me, there was no film in the camera. We just staged it for his benefit. Okay, so now it was time for the receiving line. And I'm standing there with my partner and the 
other dignitaries from 20th Century Fox and MASH, and he walks by, and he shakes everybody's hand, and he gets to me, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I shook his hand, and I said, excuse me, what career advice would you give young people thinking of getting into your profession? Needless to say, it was like an E.F. Hutton moment. Everybody was like, <gasps> and, and he laughed. I'm sure he laughed because, okay, I'm one of those stupid MASH writers, you know, those comedy guys. But anyway, he laughed and thought that was funny. So, of course, everybody else thought that was funny. And there were no repercussions, although my reception on BBC America is always kind of bad. And every British Airlines flight I have ever taken since has been delayed. Hmm. Coming up next is another air check of me on 10Q. I've gotten a lot of requests for people, I don't know why, but thank you, uh, wanting to hear more of my disc jockey days. So again, this is 1977, maybe 1978. And this was when I was a screaming top 40 disc jockey on KTNQ Los Angeles. At the time, I was the head writer of MASH along with David Isaacs. And then every Saturday night from 6 to 10, I would go on the radio as my alter ego, Beaver Cleaver. And as you'll notice from this particular episode, it starts with me telling the Prince Charles joke. And it's going to sound, of course, just like a joke, just like a way of getting on the radio. But now you know the rest of the story. A couple of other things about that particular air check. It is called a scoped air check. And what that means is all of the songs have been cut out. See, there is a microphone that is attached to a recorder. So every time I turn the mic on, it turns the tape recorder on. Every time I turn the mic off, it turns the tape recorder off. So what you are going to hear is a five-minute segment, which is probably an hour of me on the radio. And then the other thing that you should know is that I did promos for the station. We had a campaign to promote the morning man, John M. Driscoll, and I got to do these promos where I was like giving the background history of John M. Driscoll. And of course, they're all really stupid, nutty facts that I made up about the guy. That's in there as well. So let's get back into the DeLorean and head back to 1977 for Beaver Cleaver on the new 10Q. You know, I had a thrill of my life this week. I actually had a chance to meet uh, Prince Charles. That's right. Uh, oh, he, came, he came by the old mash set, and I got a chance to meet him and shake his hand. And I asked him, uh, I asked him very important questions like, uh, what do you recommend to youngsters thinking of going into your business? I love the chucker, KTNQ, Los Angeles. Six o'clock, this is Beaver Cleaver, and I'll tell you, once I get started, baby, holding me back is like trying to hold back the Pacific Ocean with a broom. I am here with an AM, FM radio, and wham, so let's get started. Once you get started. that blonde bombshell Jackie DeShannon going back to her roots, which I understand are dark, and don't let the flame burn out. 606 is Saturday night, and this is Beaver Cleaver. Epic Records presents one minute of uninterrupted sobriety. 
Shipyards in Long Beach falls in love with some Pluto and he sails away and all that's left for her is the 10Q duck. Now in Beaver. I bet most younger sisters feel the way I do. 10Q. Well, for the 17th straight week in a row, my picture is not on the cover of the 10Q music menu available everywhere. Be the third on your block to get yours, baby. Beaver Cleaver at 622. Grabbing my Dramamine, and I'm going to ride Captain Ride. 73 men sailed up. 10Q, well, it looks as though Sammy John was caught doing 16 in an 18-year-old zone again. Chevy van. I gave a girl a ride in the wagon. Oh, you're invading my space, man. Los Angeles, LA's only radio. Seven o'clock. I'm Beaver Cleaver at 10Q with Ike and Lana Turner. Huh? 10Q. I wonder if Randy Newman was dumped by a midget one. Short people. 704 and Beaver Cleaver. University Stereo explodes again, and now the birth of our largest university stereo in Hollywood on Sunset across from Tower Records. The John Driscoll story. A story that must be told. John M. Driscoll, currently morning man at 10Q Radio, was born sometime between the end of World War II and the end of the World Football League. Born in a log condominium in West Covina when it was still known as East Covina, Driscoll began to breathe almost from the first. John's father, a failed realtor taken to purchasing parcels of land in the North Atlantic, had a vision that someday his son's picture would be on a 10Q music menu. The senior Driscoll was later arrested for failing to abuse his child. Listen for more of the John Driscoll story and listen for more of John Driscoll every morning from 6 to 9 on 10Q. 10Q. Beaver Cleaver just sitting here in a converted old mortuary on Western Avenue. 520 WINS is my telephone number. I'm just hoping that some young lady will call me and say something obscene like Love me. stuff instant winners are made of. <laughs> Von Element. Say it again. Please. Making my headphones curdle. Love it. I remember times, my love, when we really
Boy, you want to talk about a useless skill. The ability to talk up to records and hit the vocals. <laughs> when am I ever going to do that? Again, professionally at least. I do it all the time in my car and I'm still really, really good at it. But radio has changed. There are so few disc jockeys. A lot of disc jockeys aren't even allowed to do it. And even those that can, there are now digital clocks. And come on, put on your big boy pants and just talk them up without having to follow a clock. Anyway, I've been thinking about some of these useless skills. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching the Tonys. I was the only one I know. And Kevin Spacey, the host, was doing impressions. And he did an impression of Johnny Carson. And I thought to myself at the time, who the fuck even knows Johnny Carson? I mean, half of the audience or two-thirds of the audience were sitting there watching him going, uh, who's this guy? I mean, I could go, and time to free the slaves and tell you, yeah, that's exactly the way Abraham Lincoln spoke. You wouldn't know, you know, as far as I know. That's the best Abraham Lincoln impression that anyone has ever done. So I started thinking, how many other gifted people are blessed with a talent that ultimately does them no good at all. I remember a couple of years ago, I was at Dodger Stadium, and there was this guy who imitates baseball players' batting stances. Now, how the hell do you make a living imitating baseball players' batting stances? And then there's a guy in San Francisco who, (laughs) this guy was truly amazing, he really was, and he did reproductions of great works of art in chalk, On sidewalks. Now, very impressive, but that's his calling of all mediums. Why pick chalk? And there are a few other artists I looked up that only Broadway Danny Rose would represent. Okay, and these are real guys, okay? There's a guy who can snap his fingers the fastest. I guess he's the world's fastest hipster. And there's another guy who can hold the most eggs in his hand. Now, who's going to pay good money in Vegas to see that? There's someone who claims to be the fastest texter, besides my daughter, Annie. And another is the fastest clapper. Now, don't you feel sorry for the second fastest clapper? Because the first fastest clapper is probably starving. And then there is a gentleman who can draw a perfect circle. Other than getting chicks, I really don't see the point of that. And I'm sure there's an awful lot others. I mean, what do baton champions do? What kind of legacy can gingerbread housemakers have? Meanwhile, Gallagher makes a handsome living smashing watermelons, and Vanna White makes a fortune from turning over vowels. So my heart goes out to all of these talented individuals. Oh, I just thought of another talent that yields no discernible profit. Blogging. David Isaacs and I wrote all of the Bar Wars episodes of Cheers. They're very popular, and I get a lot of questions about them in my Friday questions section of my blog. And so I thought I would assemble all of them and answer them all at one time, the FAQs of Cheers Bar Wars. So here we go. First question, did we purposely plan for the Cheers gang to lose every time? And the answer to that is yes, except for the last one. Because frustration is much funnier than victory. 
Now, the trick, however, was to find different ways for them to lose or to screw themselves. I guess I grew up uh, watching too many Roadrunner cartoons. And then that last episode, which was the final season, in fact, I think it aired like maybe four or five episodes from the grand finale. We decided to not only let Cheers win, but to demolish Gary's Old Town Tavern once and for all. We are nothing if not vengeful. Trivial note, by the way, that is the only episode of Cheers that I appear in. I am sitting at the bar in an early scene. Usually, David and I came up with the ideas ourselves, but for that one, we enlisted the help of Harry Anderson. Remember, in the early episodes of Cheers, Harry Anderson played Harry the Hat, the magician slash con man. Well, that really was Harry. He went on from Cheers to star in Night Court and then Dave's World and other things, but we enlisted his help in coming up with a sting. Now, here is the question I am probably asked the most. Who played Gary? And the answer is, which time? We actually had two actors who played Gary, and in no particular order. Now, the first time that the character appeared, Joel Polis played him in a 1985 episode called From Beer to Eternity. And when we wrote the first Bar Wars episode... Joel wasn't available. It was at the very end of the season. We had no other scripts. It's not like we could just uh, save it and then shoot it a couple of weeks later when he was available. So we just had to recast. We got Robert Desiderio to become Gary. Then for Bar Wars 2, for reasons I don't really understand, but we went back to Joel Polis and used him one other time. Otherwise, it was Robert Desiderio. Confusing? I don't understand why we did it either. Hopefully this mystery will be tackled in yet the next sequel of The Da Vinci Code. What is my favorite Bar Wars episode? It's Bar Wars 5, and honestly, my partner David Isaacs came up with the idea. That's the one where Sam's prank kills Gary or at least that's what Sam thinks. And if you can't get laughs with a man digging up a grave, then you are just not a comedy writer. So Bar Wars 5, or Bar Wars V, as it appears in Netflix. What is my least favorite Bar Wars episode? Easy. Bar Wars 6. That's the one where the gang thinks that a wise guy buys Gary's bar, so a prank unleashes the mafia after them. Uh, we were reaching <laughs> by that point. And sometimes we are a little too clever for our own good. In Bar Wars 2, there's a Bloody Mary contest. And we had a number of twists and turns. And after turning in the script, the staff decided to add a few more. By the end, I think there were maybe six too many. It was like the big sleep of Bar Wars episodes. No one alive can tell you exactly what happened. It was very strange sitting in front of the television watching an episode where I was the writer and I was confused. That was our least favorite. Was it hard to plot these episodes? Well, the last one was kind of easy because we had Harry Anderson, but most of the time, yeah, very. Uh, They were a bitch to conceive and then very hard to write because there was always so much story. By nature, exposition and setups are not inherently funny and entertaining, so we just had to pull a lot of jokes out of our ass to make those shows funny. 
what is our favorite Bar Wars gag? Well, that comes from Bar Wars 1, and it was filling Rebecca's office with sheep. And I think partly because, yes, it was very funny, but there's also the power of being a writer. You come up with this goofy idea, and voila, there are 50 sheep being herded onto the set. I'm sure the guy who came up with snakes on a plane had the same heady feeling. That was my favorite gag. There are some Bar Wars-type episodes not called Bar Wars. How come? Well, those were episodes not originally designed to be Bar Wars, but they sort of evolved into them, or they were competitions, not really practical joke wars per se. In other words, I don't know. I am still trying to figure out Bar Wars 2. And finally, are you that diabolical? <laughs> Let's just say I hope you're not allergic to sheep. Have you seen the show Brockmire? This is a sitcom that's on IFC, one of those channels. I don't know, it's on channel 2811. But it's a very funny sitcom starring Hank Azaria, who is playing a baseball announcer who is trying to redeem himself and get back to the big leagues by taking a job in some shitty Rust Belt minor league town. And like I said, it stars Hank Azaria, and it was originally a Funny or Die skit that they turned into a sitcom, and it's very, very funny. And a lot of people, since they know that I've done baseball play-by-play, both on the minor and the major league level, said to me, so do you know any guys like that? Are there guys like Brockmire? And the truth is, yes, there really are, but they're usually in the minors. Now, I encountered one, and this was back in the late 80s, and this guy, we will call him for purposes of this podcast, Jimmy, but Jimmy was the announcer for the Louisville Redbirds at the time, and he had one of those kind of voices, you know, and You know, there would be a fly ball to right field, and a typical call would be, and there's a drive to deep right field, and it's off the Pepsi-Cola sign, and wouldn't an ice-cold Pepsi taste good right about now? And he's in there with a double. So that's the kind of guy he was. And he was very flamboyant. He didn't wear one of those who-shot-the-couch jackets And he loved hitting on women. This is also a guy who, by the way, had a couple of shots with the big leagues. At one time, he was the radio announcer for the San Antonio Spurs in the NBA. And he was sitting at the scoring table calling the game and really letting the refs have it to the point where he got tossed. And this is the only announcer for the team. And in the third quarter, he got thrown out of the arena. Now, that cost him his job with the NBA. And then, amazingly, he got a job with the Minnesota Twins. And at the time, he was also moonlighting at a local drag strip in Minneapolis. And he would plug the drag strip on the Twins broadcasts, which is totally illegal. And he wound up getting fired from that job as well. But like I said, this is a guy who would hit on just about any woman that he saw. And when you're announcing minor league baseball, usually at home there's two announcers. And when you go out on the road, a lot of teams will only send one because they don't want to pay for two guys 
two plane fares, two hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So one guy will have to do all of the road games by himself. And usually when that happens, the guy will come into the home booth and ask if one of their announcers is going to be free for a couple of innings, whether or not they'd come in and spell him for an inning or so. And so when Jimmy came to town, he asked me if I would fill in for an inning. I said, sure, okay. You know, it's always kind of fun to go on other stations and talk to other listeners. So uh, he said, come on by in the fourth inning. So I came by in the fourth inning. And usually what would occur is the announcer would introduce you and then he might go up and get a hot dog and come back in a few minutes or get a cup of coffee or use the bathroom. But usually he would come back and he would sit and he would join you and he would offer some color and you could have a little banter back and forth. And it just gave him a break for about 15 minutes. So anyway, I go in the booth and Jimmy says, now as we go to the fourth inning, we have the voice of the Syracuse Chiefs uh, coming on. Here's Kendall of Iron. And by the time I said, thank you, Jimmy, and turned to look, you can see papers flying. He was out of the booth. And like I said, usually you would guess for a half an inning or maybe an inning. Well, I was there the fourth. I was there the fifth. I was there the sixth. I was there the seventh. Meanwhile, my broadcast partner is ducking his head in saying, hey, you're supposed to be on our show. And I, I don't know. I can't leave. And I can see him. He is down in the stands having a beer, just chatting up some woman. Oh, man, this, this guy was, was such a winner. The next time he came to town, he said, uh, would you come on and do the broadcast? And I said, listen, I'll do it with you. I'll sit in the booth with you. But no, I am not going to do it by myself. So I'm doing the broadcast with him. And at the time, there was a woman umpire. She was the first woman umpire, and she was trying to make it. And Louisville was in the American Association, and Syracuse was in the International League. And they had interleague play, but primarily we saw teams in the IL, and they saw teams in the AA, and she was in the American Association. So she was the home plate umpire that night. And I said to Jimmy, so uh, what do you think of her as an umpire? And he starts writing me a note, and he's talking, and he's going, well, you know, she's okay calling balls and strikes, but, uh, you know, she's got some problems on the lines, you know, some close plays. And the note says, I fucked her. And that was it. I just fell over laughing, could not stop. And by the way, I'm sure he didn't. And then there was the time that we went into Louisville, and it was the first game of the series, and my partner in Syracuse, Dan Horde, and I were talking in the first couple of innings about the Colonel Sanders Museum that was very close to the hotel. Yes, there is a Colonel Sanders Museum. And we were joking around, you know, about the extra crispy wing and that sort of thing and having a real good time. And at that particular game, there was a reporter for USA Today named Rachel Schuster, which is not an easy name to say. And she was going to do an article about minor league baseball announcers. So what she thought she would do is take the first couple of innings and sit with Jimmy And then she'd come over and do the next couple of innings with us and just sit in the back of the booth and listen to the broadcast. So we're having fun these first two innings. And then we get a call from the station saying there's a big thunderstorm and the station is off the air and the engineer won't be in to fix it until the morning. So we might as well just pack up and go home. 
So we figure, well, okay, we still have Rachel coming in, so we might as well just do the next couple of innings for her. So she comes in, and she's just shaking her head. And we said, well, what's going on? And she said, oh, my God, Jimmy just kept hitting on me the entire time. Well, we didn't hit on her. What we decided to do was reprise all of the Colonel Sanders museum shtick that we had done in the first couple of innings. And now it was really polished, and my partner Dan is great and picked up on things, and the two of us just sounded like a well-oiled comedy team. And she was just blown away. Anyway, the article came out. Needless to say, nice things were said about us. Not so nice things were said about Jimmy. But this is the greatest Jimmy story ever. Louisville was playing a game in Des Moines. And at the old Sec Taylor Stadium in Des Moines, Iowa, there was the press section, and then there was like an open small window, and to the right was the visiting broadcast booth. And so the reporters could hear the visiting broadcasters. Well, Jimmy, earlier that day, had met some woman, and he made a date with her, and they were going to meet at 11 o'clock in the hotel lobby. So now he's calling the game, and the game is dragging on, and it's getting to be 10 o'clock, and it's 10.15, and they're still in the the eighth inning, and he's got to do the game, he's got to do the post-game show, he's got to wrap up his equipment, he's got to drive back to the hotel. There's no way he's going to make it there by 11 o'clock. So what does he do? Well, between the top of the eighth inning and the bottom of the eighth inning, As the teams are exchanging positions, all of a sudden the reporters start hearing play-by-play from Jimmy. And uh, leading off now is uh, Harris, and he swings at the first pitch, and there's a high pop-up to the first baseman, one out. Uh, Moving along quickly, now Jackson at the play. Whoa, he swings at the first pitch, too. There's a ground ball to short, over to first, in time for the out. He's making up the play-by-play. And so within another 10 minutes, he's done. <laughs> he's, he's wrapped up the game. And that's it. He said, oh, you know, it's, it's raining now, and it's kind of hard to hear. We may lose you. And, and, and then he just turns off the equipment and packs up and goes home. And that was it. The guy made up the play-by-play so that he could go back and hopefully get laid. Needless to say, Jimmy did not last very long And he was replaced the following season by a guy named Joe Buck. I think the team traded up. Coming back with more Hollywood and Levine right after this timeout. And that will do it for this episode of Hollywood and Levine. As always, if you want to write me, I'd love to hear from you. My email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. And, of course, you for listening. Back next week with more. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.